would I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 1, the book of Psalms, chapter 1. We'll be reading the entire chapter. If you don't know where Psalms is, it's pretty much right in the middle of your Bible, maybe a little left. Psalms, chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Pray with me. God, we ask simply that you would come and you would speak and that we would hear. It's a simple request, yet if you do not send your spirit to move in power, it will not happen. Because our ears are dull, our minds are dull. I'm incapable of presenting the truth that you have presented in Scripture. And so we we ask through the power of your Spirit that you would allow those things to happen, that you would speak and that we would hear, that you would come and you would bring life. For those of us here who need encouragement, I pray that you would surround them with encouragement. For those who need to be convicted, I pray that you would rest heavy on them and bring them a heart of repentance. God, now I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to take a break, um, a brief break from the book of Acts tonight. Um, Actually, this is something I want to do throughout the entire year. The last Sunday um, of of the month, uh, we're going to take a break from whatever series we're going through. We're... Right now we're going through the series of the book of Acts, and we're going to look at a different psalm. And so we're going to look at a total of 12 psalms throughout the year, which which is really only scraping the surface because there's 150 of them. We're going to look at 12. Uh, John Calvin, he thought that these psalms were so important that he preached from the psalms for over 500 Sundays in a row. Um, And the psalms are hugely important. Uh, They deserve that attention. There's a reason that when you buy uh, a New Testament, if you were to go to a bookstore and you were to buy a New Testament, it's always going to be the New Testament and the book of Psalms. It's not the New Testament and the book of Genesis, the New Testament and the the prophet Isaiah. And those are great books. Those are foundational books, but it's going to be the New Testament and the book of Psalms. 
The New Testament quotes from the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. And when you look at Jesus, the life of Jesus, he's always quoting the Psalms. When religious leaders would reject him, he would quote from the Psalms, Psalm 118, and he'd say, hey, the stone that the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. Or when he wanted to give a definitive argument that the Messiah was the Son of God, when when Jesus gives his apologetic, if you will, he doesn't turn to Isaiah, he doesn't turn to Genesis, he doesn't turn to any other book that was available there, he goes to the Psalms. And he goes to Psalm 110, and he says, explain to me this, how can David say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I put your enemies under your feet? He said, David calls him Lord, but how can he call him Lord if, if he's his son? Now, granted, this is not the argument I would use, not the, the, the watertight argument that I would use to show people that I am the son of God, but Jesus knew the power of the Psalms in a way I don't. When Jesus was on the cross, he wanted to express his agony, his grief, his abandonment. He went to the Psalms to find voice for those things. And he quoted Psalm 22 when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Literally, when you would poke Jesus, when you would spear him, he would bleed the Psalms. He embodied the Psalms. The book of the Psalms was his prayer book. It needs to be our prayer book. Don't make the mistake that I think uh, probably a number of us make when we think about prayer. We think prayer is uh, it's simply pouring out your heart to God. That's all you need to do for prayer is you just need to pour out your heart, and that makes a good prayer. Um, if that was the case, the disciples would not have had to ask Jesus, teach us to pray. And then he wouldn't have given them instruction on how exactly to pray if it's simply to pour out your heart. Because prayer is much more than that. It is pouring out your heart, but how do you pour pour out your heart? And the Psalms teach us how we pour out our heart before God. They they give expressions to, uh, to longings that we didn't even know we had. Or they are to stir up longings that we need to have. They're full of emotion. Um, I I was just reading through a number of the Psalms this weekend. They're packed full of emotion. More emotion than I honestly am comfortable with. They're full of uh, joy, celebrations, victories. They're full of sorrow. Defeat, agony, suffering, anxiety. And the Psalms are there to teach us how through all of those emotions to have God at the center. Through all of that. And this is why we need this book so desperately. We do ourselves a great disservice, and I think... The last couple of generations, this has become more and more prominent. When we treat the Psalms as, uh, you know, you just kind of flip through the Psalms and you find that one little cheery verse that you can sing a chorus to. You know, maybe you highlight it, maybe you memorize it, and okay, well, there's a good cheery verse. There's a, a verse I can memorize to maybe battle sin. And, and you just kind of take these, these little cheery verses or these little pithy sayings, and, and that's your extent of knowledge of the Psalms. But you really need the entirety. You need the full range of motions 
So you can go through all those and through all the complexities of life and you can see that Jesus is the center of it all. Without the Psalms, we would not know how to pray. We wouldn't know Christ. Um, Because when you read through the book of Psalms and you you see those highest joys, those highest praises, it obviously leads us to Christ. But also when you get into those Psalms where you see the lowest of the lows and the suffering and the anxieties, the anguish, those also teach us about Christ. The judgment Psalms, they teach us about Christ and everything that Christ experienced on the cross. We see both the exaltation and we see both the cross there as we go through the book. We, we want to know Christ and so we want to know the Psalms. Uh, the best way that I know of to introduce the book of Psalms is to go to Psalm chapter 1. Um, there's a reason that Psalm 1 is Psalm 1. There's a reason it's in the beginning. Uh, it's because the very first psalm gives you instruction as to how to read everything that follows it. Um, actually, if you go through some ancient Bibles, um, this is common a lot in medieval Bibles, um, what you see as Psalm 1 uh, is, doesn't have one there. Psalm 2 has the first psalm. Um, psalm 1 was just seen as the introduction to the psalms. They didn't even consider it one of the psalms. This is just the introduction to the psalms that follow, and it is a great introduction. Um, and so let's, uh, let's kind of work our way through this. The psalm begins with, blessed is the man, or if you prefer King James, blessed, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Blessed means happy. It means satisfied. It means fortunate. Um, It could read this, how rewarding or how satisfying is the life of. And and so I don't know anybody here who would not want this, would not want a rewarding, a a satisfying life. And and Psalms chapter 1, it tells us how to do this. Let's read the very first verse. Blessed is the man who walks... Not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's actually an acceleration of sinful behavior here. Um, first, there's, you, you see the counsel of the wicked. Um, then you see you know, this way, and then you say this, see this seat. And so the counsel begins with the mind. The way begins with your actions, and the seat is your identification. It becomes who you are. And, and that's, that's how sin moves. That's how it accelerates in your life. And so you might have something, let's just play out a scenario. Let's say you're late to work, and your boss asks you, why are you late to work? And so you begin to... Have an internal debate. You, you are counseling with yourself. You're thinking through your options, your answers. And uh, the reality is you just overslept. But then you start thinking, well, you know, he's going to be really upset at that. Uh, I know other coworkers, they've lied. I can do a little white lie. And you start thinking through excuses. And so you say, uh, there was actually a wreck. Traffic was all backed up. I couldn't make it in. So now your counsel has turned into an action or it's turned into the way. 
Now, if you continue to lie, and you continue to lie, it becomes your identity. You're no longer the person who lied. You're a liar. You are sitting with the scoffers. Uh, it could be the same with, uh, one I would struggle with is, um, is generosity or giving money, apparently, or what if, what if somebody came before you and they're needy, you know they're needy, they're your brother in Christ, and they ask for help, and you know you can give that help, and you feel that you should give that help. Then you begin this internal debate. And even though you, you, you feel compelled to give, you're like, well, they're just going to waste it. I've worked hard for my money. I deserve this money. I'm not going to give this money. And so your counsel then turns into a way, and you say, no, I'm not going to give that to you. And then over time, as you continue to do this and continue to do this, you're no longer the person who just didn't give money. You are now greedy. It's your identity. It is who you are. You are sitting in greed. And this happens all the time. Nobody immediately decides, you know what, I want to be greedy. You know, I want to be a liar. It's, It's this gradual effect. And the psalmist is so good to show that this happens over time. You, you know, first the person's walking, says they're walking, and then all of a sudden they're standing, and then they're sitting. They didn't decide, I'm just going to go and sit with scoffers. No, they're, they're, they're walking by, and then they, they hear it. Then they kind of stop, so they can hear a little bit more, and then finally they settle down. And that's, that's the effects that sin has on us. Now, contrasted to this is the blessed man. The blessed man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The psalmist then tells us of two different outcomes, two different lifestyles. And there are only two. There's the righteous man, and he becomes a man of substance, Uh, He becomes prosperous. He becomes full of life. Um, We see this in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in the season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And then it contrasts that with the wicked. I like the King James when it's like, not so the wicked. I mean, it's just very abrupt. It's like you have this wonderful water tree, but not so the wicked. They're blown away like chaff. A chaff is is the husk uh, of grain. It's it's dry. It's dead. It's hollow. It's it's worthless. So you you have only two options, and there are only two options. There's there's not a third option that's put there. Uh, The psalmist doesn't give you a third option. Jesus doesn't give you a third option when he says there's only two ways, one that leads to death, one that leads to life. It's the same thing we see here. Two options. You can either become a man of substance and of life, or you could become a hollow, shallow man full of destruction and death. But there is no other way. And then we get to the key of it all. It's the key to this entire psalm, and it's the key to the rest of the psalms. And that's found in verse 2, which tells us how to become a person of substance and full of life. 
says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Meditation is the key to the Psalms. It's the key to the Psalms. Um, It's interesting that, you know, the Psalms, it's the prayer book of the Bible. It's the prayer book for, for God's people, yet the very first Psalm is not a prayer. You've got all these prayers that are going to follow, but the very first psalm is not a prayer. It's a meditation. That's what it is. And, and it, that tells us a lot about the, uh, the importance and the place of meditation, where it should be in our life. Meditation, don't think of, um, don't think of yoga or emptying your mind or uh, trying to figure out what one-hand clapping sounds like. Or, or, uh, that, that, that's not... It's not meditation. It's, it's not the emptying of your mind. You're going you're to fill your mind with something. You're going you're to chew on this. Um, when I was in seminary, I, t- I took a class on prayer. Um, so don't worry, I'm an expert on prayer, so you're in good hands. Uh, uh, I was really excited about my professor. He uh, was the founding dean of Regent College in Vancouver, um, he was actually good friends with C.S. Lewis, and he was still alive then, and he's still alive now. Uh, he had written several fantastic books on prayer, and so I was really excited about taking prayer. I think the, the actual name of the class was The Transformative Power of Prayer, and I was thinking, wow. And so uh, I remember the first day of class I went in, and uh, I was instantly kind of disappointed because it just it wasn't what I expected I wasn't expecting, like, you know, tongues of fire, you know, around or anything like that, but I, a lighted candle would have been nice, or uh, maybe some incense. Uh, I thought for the, you know, very least, they'd throw some cushions on the floor, because, I mean, we were going to get down, and we were going to pray. This was a seminary class on prayer. And uh, so the professor comes in, and he teaches for an hour. Um, he walks through some psalms walks through some attributes about God, and that was it for the class. I mean, he opened us up in prayer. Um, I was like, okay, well, you know, first day of class is always kind of bad. Um, so the next day of class, it was the same thing. It, it was just a lot of instruction there. And I actually got just a little upset and angry. I, I'm not angry, it's not the right word. I, I guess I was disappointed. So disappointed that I went up to him afterwards and I, I said, his name was James Houston. I said, Dr. Houston, i got to be honest. I, I'm a little disappointed. I thought in a class about prayer, we would be praying. That's what I was hoping for, is, is we would be praying. And I'll always remember his response. He said, um, before we pray, we need to wait for God to start the conversation. Before we pray, we need to wait for God to start the conversation. Because the person who initiates the conversation is the one who's in control of that conversation, is the one who has that power over the conversation. You know, after this service, we're going to have our common meal. We're going to set up tables all around here. You're going to sit down next to somebody. Whoever begins the conversation... 
will determine what's talked about. And so if, if you, you could talk about politics, you could talk about sports, you can uh, talk about you know, whatever concert you went to last night, you, you can talk about whatever. But the, the moment whoever speaks first, whoever initiates that conversation, has set both the tone and the topic for what's going to follow. And so that's what my professor was trying to teach me, was you need to let God start the conversation. You need to meditate on the truths about him. Meditation is letting God start the conversation with us. It's not just instantly just kind of jumping into his presence and kind of blurting out all your problems or blurting out all your praises. It's not that. It's that those are good, that's going to happen many times throughout the Psalms, but it doesn't happen here. Meditation is a deeper, a more transformative power of prayer. Because we let God set the topic and the tone of the conversation. So we, when we come before God and we meditate, we want to first hear from His Word. And hear from Him, and then we respond. That's why the Psalter begins here with meditation about God. Verse 3 tells us what meditation is and what it does. Verse 3 says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Um, Obviously, in the Middle East, it's very arid climate. Uh, Trees just don't grow everywhere. The only place a tree is going to grow is if it's by a stream. There's not going to be enough rain to sustain a tree. And that's what the psalmist is kind of alluding to here is you, you need a direct water source. And the spiritual life is no different. If you want to be a tree, if you want to be a person of substance and of life, you need to have this direct water source, which is the word of God through his spirit in you. That's where life-changing prayer begins. You need to to hunger for that word, to absorb that word like a tree does its water. You need to soak it up like your very life depends on it, which it does. And and, and I I just need to say this. This is not talking about a Bible study. Don't don't read this and think, oh, okay, I I need to to join another Bible study. I need to listen to another podcast. I need to listen to another sermon. I need to, uh, uh, to read another book. Um, that's, that's not it. Uh, Americans always think that, you know, the solution to their problem is just to get another book or to get more facts, and, th- and that's not it. This is much more than just learning new facts about God. The word meditation literally means murmuring. Um, or talking to oneself is meditation. Uh, We like to read silently. Maybe your lips will move sometimes, but you don't actually make sound. They didn't do that in this culture. Um, Everybody would read aloud. They would read very softly, but they would read aloud. And so when there was in a group this size, you would hear this murmuring all over. People are reading aloud. And that's meditation, is when you're speaking God's word to yourself, meditation. That murmuring there. And so you are telling yourself what God has just told you. 
All right, maybe it'll help if I can give you a few examples in the Psalms of meditation. Psalm 42 says this. It's a very familiar psalm. It says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Um, who is the psalmist talking to? Why so downcast, O my soul? He's not talking to God. And he's not talking to other people. What he's doing is he is meditating. He is talking to himself. Soul, why are you downcast? Soul, why are you in turmoil? Soul, put your hope in God. Psalm 103 is another example of this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Once again, the psalmist is not talking to God. The psalmist is not talking to other people. He is talking to his soul. And he's saying, soul, remember God. Remember how he's merciful. Remember how much he has benefited you. Remember how he saved you. Bless him because of those things, soul. One more meditation. Psalm 116. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So the psalmist is suffering from anxiety here. And what the psalmist needs is not another book. He doesn't need more information. He doesn't need another seminar. He doesn't need any of those things. What he needs is to, to meditate or to remind himself of who God is. God, you've saved me. God, you've brought me up out of the pit. God, you've been merciful to me. And he reminds himself, he says, in light of that, return, O my soul, to your rest. Soul, you can rest. He's chewing on those words and preaching to himself. So meditation is when we talk to ourselves God's word. We, we, we draw it in like a tree draws in water. Back to Psalm 1. Let's look at the results of this meditation. Uh, the results are the second half of verse 3. When it says, the tree will yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Notice what meditation does. Draws in water, but then kicks out fruit. All right? It's not water in, water out. Something transformative happens. It's, it's water in, it's, it's fruit out. For us as believers, it's the word of God in, and then somehow it transforms and it works its way out into fruit. I like to think of it this way. It's, it's the Word becoming flesh. It's the Word being fleshed out in our life. That's what meditation does. It makes the Word of God 
flesh. And we see that here. Um, Jonathan Edwards uh, has actually helped me out a whole lot as I was going through this. Um, Jonathan Edwards was a preacher, philosopher, theologian during the Great Awakening. Brilliant man. I think he graduated from Princeton at the age of 16, 17. Uh, And during the Great Awakening, there's all these people who are professing to be Christians. And so he... uh, he asked the question, well, how do we know if a person is a mature Christian or if they're a shallow Christian or if they're a Christian at all? How do, how do we know? And his bottom line was this. He said, uh, he could sum it up in two words, spiritual reality. Spiritual reality. Um, is the spiritual world really real to this person? Um, I would phrase it like this. Does this person really believe what they say they believe? Do their actions show that? Um, for instance, depending on what polls you look at, uh, either 85% up to 92% of Americans believe in heaven. Okay, so 85% to 92% of Americans believe in heaven. That is a, that's the vast majority of Americans believe there is a heaven. Is it a spiritual reality for them? Because if you believe in heaven, if, if 85 to 92% of Americans really believe in heaven, this would be the least materialistic society probably that ever walked the planet. Money would have no hold on you. Possessions would have no hold on you because you believe in heaven that is to come. But the fact that people 90% believe in heaven doesn't mean it's a spiritual reality to them. They don't really believe what they say they believe. It's not real enough to them to put flesh on it, to make a difference. And so they go on just living a normal life. And this is why meditation is so important. Because we remind ourselves about truths, things like heaven is real. It's all throughout the scriptures. Heaven is real. In light of that, Joel, heaven's real. In light of that, you can give up your possessions. It's real. Hey, soul, let go of some of those things. Meditation. Or you can remind yourself about things like, God, you're sovereign and you are good. And and as you chew on that, you begin to preach to yourself. In light of that, Joel, why are you anxious? Soul, don't be anxious. Trust. And so those theological concepts, those beliefs, now actually bear fruit. The Word of God becomes flesh in my life. And I think about those things like in light of worship. If you really understand that God has saved you the way that God says He has saved you in the Bible, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, that you had no hope apart from Him, and you remind yourselves of those things, you know what you're going to say? Soul, wake up from your callous worship. Rejoice in God. Praise Him like you've never praised Him before. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
And, and you're going to tell yourself that. Make it a spiritual reality. The word of God then becomes flesh in your life. It's meditation. Nobody, of course, did this any better than Christ. Jesus embodied the Psalms. The Psalms were so in him, literally, it was the word of God made flesh. You would see how Jesus lived and you would say, it's the word of God. There's one problem in all of this that kind of hit me um, as I was going through this um, yesterday. It's actually a pretty glaring problem. Uh, I was reading through the Sermon of the Mount. Actually, it wasn't yesterday. It was a few days ago. I was reading through the Sermon of the Mount um, because of the word blessed. That's what you do as a pastor. You know, you're like, hey, there's the word blessed. Blessed is the man. Well, let's see where Jesus talks about blessing. All right. He talks about the, the, the Beatitudes as blessed are the. And so I started reading the Beatitudes to see if it would shed light on this. And that was all great. That's all good. Um, but then I kept reading through the Sermon on the Mount. And it got ugly. I mean, it just got bad. Uh, because Jesus starts meditating on the law of God. He starts delighting in the law of God. At first I thought that was going to be good, but it turned ugly. Because Jesus starts saying, hey, let's, let's meditate. Let's, uh, let's delight ourselves in the law of God. Let's, Thou shalt not murder. Let me delight in that. Let me meditate on that. Well, really, the, the heart of murder is anger. So I tell you, if any of you have been angry with your brother, you've committed murder, and you're liable to judgment. I'm like, I didn't like that. I did not delight in that meditation. And then he moves on to another one. He says, adultery. Let's just, uh, let's just delight ourselves in the law and thinking about why we should not commit adultery. And he says, actually, everybody out there, if, you, uh, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery, and you're liable to judgment. You're like, Delighting in the law was not going well for me. <laughs> Meditating on God's law didn't give me joy. It didn't make me feel like a tree. It made me feel like chaff. It made me feel like I deserved judgment. And I, and I, was, I was feeling those things. And, and this is where the glory of the gospel hit. It's like, yes, you, Joel, as you meditate on the law, as you try to delight in the law, it's going to kick you. And you deserve punishment. And Christ became the chaff so that I might be the tree. And it's just so clear. I, I mean, I deserved all of those things that are ascribed to the wicked there. I deserve to be blown away and to not stand in judgment. But Christ became all those things. You know, on the cross, he felt hollow. He felt, he felt abandoned. He felt empty. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt like he was burning up, that there was no water source. I thirst. He's, he's feeling the judgment there so that I can be the tree. If you really look carefully at this psalm, I wish we had time to just take another few hours. You can, you can see the gospel in so many ways. You know, one of the ways that just kind of hit me is, is, is look at those first three verses. 
In those first three verses, the wicked are always plural. There's the counsel of the wicked. There's the way of the sinners. There's the seed of the scoffers. They're all plural, but there's only one righteous. There's many, many wicked, but there's only one righteous. Until judgment. Judgment happens, and now there is the congregation of the righteous. There's now many righteous. So many times as you begin to just look at the Psalms and meditate, that's what you're, that's what you're doing. You're just chewing on it, chewing on it, preaching to yourself that things, God begins to come alive. Your prayer life deepens in a way you cannot imagine. The word becomes flesh. Pray with me. God, we thank you that your word became flesh. You so embodied the Psalms from the highest joys and jubilation and praises, exaltation, far more than we can imagine. At the same time, the judgment, the despair, the abandonment, the anxiety, far more than we could comprehend. Both of those are there, embodied perfectly through Jesus. So Jesus, we've come here to remember you and to thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for becoming chaff for us so that we can be planted. We don't plant ourselves. You plant us. You save us. And then you give us your water. May we drink from you tonight. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.